3: Good morning, it's 8.30 on Thursday, December 3rd. I'm Karen Brown and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show- We're not
1: at our peak. We're rapidly ascending to a peak that no one knows what it's gonna be.
3: The state health officer issues new guidance as COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations reach new heights. Then leaders at UMMC express concern over the recent surge and the strain it's putting on hospital resources. Plus, in our book club, Larry Wells on his book, In Faulkner's Shadow, A Memoir. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The coronavirus pandemic is reaching new heights of severity as widespread transmission continues in the state. Yesterday, the Department of Health reported a record high 2,457 new cases of COVID-19 in its daily report. The seven-day rolling average is also on the rise, reaching 1,605 cases per day. That's up from the previous record of 1,409 earlier this week. The steep rise is causing state health officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs to issue additional public health guidance. Dobbs recommends all residents avoid social activities that could contribute to transmission of the coronavirus, specifically noting parties, weddings, funerals, family gatherings, in-person church services and sporting events. He says these types of events have a chain effect that lead to wider transmission.
1: We have seen numerous outbreaks linked to these events. We've seen these outbreak events lead to uh, outbreaks within long-term care settings and nursing homes. And we have seen people who went to funerals last week who are on ventilators today and are likely to die. These are very serious concerns that we have, and as we see more deaths, there are going to be more funerals and more opportunity for outbreaks for funerals. So please, um, I urge you to be thoughtful about this. Funerals are especially high-risk endeavors because people invariably are going to hug, they're going to they're touch, they're going to cry, they're going to share their condolences. And we also know, we have to remember that many, if not most, at least 50% of transmissions are occurring from people who are asymptomatic and don't know that they have it, and you wouldn't know. That's why it's important for us to avoid all social gatherings and assume that anyone with whom we come in contact is going to be a contagious coronavirus case.
3: Daily case counts, hospitalizations, and rolling average metrics have all risen beyond their summer peak highs. Dobbs believes the state hasn't seen yet the crest of this current wave.
1: We're not at our peak. We're rapidly ascending to a peak that no one knows what it's going to be. So we're way higher in our daily case counts now, and our hospitalizations are growing at a rate that is absolutely terrifying. Um, so where is this going to end? Well, it's not going to end, you know, at least for weeks, right? If we did everything perfect today, it's going to be a week or two before we would even see an impact of that, because we're still going to be processing all the people who are exposed and who are going to get sick and who are going to die. So, you know, without a doubt, I think we're headed into the darkest period of the coronavirus for Mississippi.
3: Yesterday's record-high daily case report came less than a week after the Thanksgiving holiday. Dobbs believes some of those cases can be attributed to Thanksgiving activity, but suggests many more could follow.
1: Certainly, we know people traveled before the Thanksgiving holiday directly. Um, and actually, and I'll be honest, some of the cases that um, we've seen and that I've personally diagnosed this week, um, contracted the disease when they're visiting family um, in town or out of the state. Um, and then they became symptomatic. The test turnaround is, is not really too bad right now, but I think we're still seeing the front end of that wave. I, I do think, I suspect that you're correct, that we're going to start seeing more and more as the, the week progresses.
3: State epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers says the state has exceeded the summer peak of high cases. Deaths, though, have not risen at the same rate. But Byers says it's a metric that needs careful attention as cases and hospitalizations rise.
0: Looking at the peak that we had uh, back in the summer um, in late July and early August going into September, you can see that we have now um, exceeded what we thought at the time was our peak activity. As we have um, more and more transmission within the community, obviously that does translate to um, more uh, impact on our vulnerable um, adults, especially in long-term care settings. Um, and we are seeing, um, additional deaths. And if you look at our, um, our current deaths, um, you can see that although we haven't risen to where we were, um, over the summer spike that we had, we are starting to see increases and we do anticipate that those numbers of deaths are going to increase over the coming weeks, uh, especially with the number of cases that we're seeing now.
3: Dobb says now more than ever, residents need to practice personal discipline by avoiding gatherings.
1: We're seeing situations where um, an asymptomatic kid gave it to a parent, gave it to a grandparent, and now we're looking at a funeral. Um, it's, it, it's really sad. It's lamentable. And the saddest part of it is it's entirely preventable. And it's preventable for the most, in the most simple of ways, is we don't need to be having social events, period, of any type whatsoever right now. We're almost to a vaccine that looks very effective and very safe. We've just got to just have a little bit of discipline right now, or we're going to see a lot more funerals.
3: There is optimism about soon-to-be-available vaccines, but Dobbs says that's not an excuse to stop other mitigation efforts. He says the early impacts of those initial doses will not reach the general public.
1: There's not near enough doses of vaccine that will be available within the next few weeks to have any impact. On population transmission, no matter who we give it to, um, it's it's going to be a little bit like um, pouring water into the sand. Um, but if we're strategic with us with it, we can not only preserve critical healthcare infrastructure, we can also have the most impact in morbidity and mortality and hospital utilization. And so, for this these reasons, uh, frontline healthcare workers and long term care facilities have been prioritized at the federal level from that decision making and we certainly agree with that.
3: Over 57,000 Mississippians have contracted COVID-19 since the prior statewide mask mandate expired on September 30th. That's more than one-third of the total cases since March 11th. Coming up, leaders at UMMC express concern over the recent surge and the strain it's putting on hospital resources. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi hospitals are operating at capacity as coronavirus patients add strain to the health care system. Yesterday morning, the state's largest hospital had dozens of patients waiting to be admitted to the intensive care unit. There are 700 hospital beds at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, but there are more than 760 patients being treated currently. That's according to hospital leadership. Vice Chancellor Dr. Luann Woodward says coronavirus patients adding an unusual, level of burden on the hospital's resources.
5: We are not backing down. We are not waving the white flag. We are not stopping. We are not going to surrender. We are going to continue to give it all we've got and to bring every bit of resource to bear to fight this pandemic. What I fear that people do not understand, however, is that the resources are finite They are finite. There gets to a point when we have to say, we don't have another place to put another patient safely. We can't do it. And it gets to a point where we have to say, we don't have the nursing staff. We don't have it. The grave concern that I have is that people just generally don't understand the resources are finite. There is a point where you have done all that you can manage to do.
3: Dr. Alan Jones of UMMC says demand for resources has shifted since the summer peak. He says even though the hospital is still short of critical care beds, med surge resources are facing the brunt of the current wave of hospitalizations. The
4: demand that we are seeing uh, on our hospital resources is mainly focused on our med surge beds, Um, not like the previous peak that we saw in Mississippi, uh, but a little bit unique, uh, less uh, strain on critical care services, less demand on critical care beds, although we still are running at a deficit of critical care beds. Uh, The deficit between our med surge beds and our critical care beds have flip-flopped with this peak. Hospitalizations across the state are at an all time high for COVID, that they have been. We hit one yesterday, and then we hit another one again today. Um, it appears as though uh, more hospitals have med surge capability and med surge beds. So that the, the hospital systems are weathering this surge presently uh, a little bit better than they were with the first surge. Um, but as Dr. Woodward mentioned, inevitably, if there continues to be an uptick in activity, there will certainly be an uptick in the amount of demand placed on critical care beds. That, coupled with the fact that not only is Mississippi full, but our uh, region is full, the surrounding states, and then the states, uh, you know, in, in a in another standard deviation around that, are all full. Uh, as we all know, this is a nationwide phenomenon.
3: Treatment and care of COVID-19 patients have evolved since the summer wave. Dr. Jones says hospitals are adapting their care, providing them more flexibility as new m- admissions come in.
4: At the peak back in uh, back in the summer, we had high 90s at our maximum number. Uh, but we also are doing something a little more unique here now is we'll remove people off of isolation so that they can go into a normal bed once they've passed the infectious period. Um, That allows us a little more flexibility with our resources for COVID patients. Um, So again, I wanna emphasize that I said this earlier, the, the number of patients hospitalized across the state are at an all time high. We've seen a shift from ICU type patients to med surge And there are more hospitals and hospital beds available on the med surge side. So that has allowed um, more flexibility within the larger hospitals to care for these patients. But we're full. If anybody doesn't think we're full, we can walk you around and show you where we have patients and nowhere to put them.
3: UMMC administrators were among the many health care leaders that began calling for a statewide mask mandate last month. Dr. Woodward says she sees no reason to be antagonistic with Governor Tate Reeves over his decision to maintain his piecemeal mitigation strategy.
5: I, I would say there is really no gain to be had in, in me trying to be in any kind of antagonistic stance with the governor. And at the end of the day, we are all on the same page and we're all on the same team and we're trying hard to do the right thing for Mississippi. I don't know what data inputs he's getting and what opinions he's getting. I do feel that a statewide mask mandate would be important and would be valuable. Does that mean everybody's going to wear a mask? Of course not. I mean, they're just not... Some people won't care that there's a statewide mask mandate, but some would. And it definitely sends a signal that this is an important component, not the only thing as we've said, but an important component of what we as citizens can do.
3: Reeves has added 54 counties to his executive order. Provisions under the executive order include the requirement of a mask when in public and restrictions on the size of social gatherings. Dr. Woodward is pleading with all Mississippians to adhere to advice and expertise of health care experts. I
5: would Plead with people to trust information from reliable sources. Not to believe every wild rumor and crazy thing you hear. Trust reliable sources for information. Wear a mask. Avoid gatherings that are not essential. Today, Dr. Dobbs and his team at the Department of Health put out a health alert network. Speaking to that, to say please go to work, go to school, and only attend essential activities. The non essential social gatherings, be they large or small, are killing us. So, those are the things that I would try to relay to the public trust credible sources, wear a mask. Stop non-essential gatherings. That is where we are shooting ourselves in the foot as a state. I don't know how many of you follow me on Twitter, but this morning I tweeted, and some of this was in the tweet, but I have lived in Mississippi my entire life. This is my home. This is my state. I love this place. So many people here have committed their career to doing everything they can do for the betterment of the state of Mississippi. I have seen us as a state respond to disasters and emergencies in miraculous ways. So many times I've been so proud of the citizens of Mississippi and how we responded to hurricanes and tornadoes and and showing care and compassion for our fellow man. That is who we are. And right now, somehow, we've got to communicate with people the way to do that in this pandemic is to wear a mask and to restrain from those gatherings where we're indoors and we're with other people, and that's where we are putting ourselves at the highest risk.
3: University of Mississippi Medical Center Vice Chancellor, Dr. Luann Woodward. Coming up in our book club, Larry Wells on his book, In Faulkner's Shadow, a memoir. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
5: Allison Walker, the Lady Auto Mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org.
0: This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting
3: and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. There is much we know about Oxford's most legendary writer, William Faulkner. But in his new book, In Faulkner's Shadow, a memoir, Larry Wells delves into the author's influence on family and community. Brown's wife, Dean Faulkner's niece, could provide details and perspective on life at home with the Nobel Prize laureate.
2: He had a powerful impact on his family. I mean, he was, he was known through, throughout the town, of course. Really, he was a genius from birth. In the schools, he was a leader. He played quarterback on the football team. He was very popular. And only after he grew up and became a writer did the town think, well, that's not the uh, normal occupation for a young man in Oxford, Mississippi, in the 1920s. And they began to tease him and and make fun of him and call him count no count. He he had a sort of a breakup with the, the town in that he was determined to pursue his calling, which was to be a writer. He was aloof to a certain extent, but at home with his family. He loved those children, and he had three children under his roof as he was writing all his brilliant novels. The effect that he had on them was really powerful, and they carried that strength and that sense of wonder about literature and life all their lives. That's what I wanted to show in my book.
3: Now, your book is two parts in terms of focus, the family being the first part and the second part, about you and your wife co-founding Yakna Press. What was your mission?
2: Well, we sort of backed into the publishing business. We would have never started a press. We were teachers. We were English teachers. We were teaching at Northwest Community College at the time. We'd both gotten our degrees at Ole Miss. and I was asked to edit a book of photographs of Faulkner, called William Faulkner of the Cofield Collection, and they were photographed by J.R. Cofield, who was William's family photographer. He was just a local photo- studio photographer, and Dean furnished about 100 pictures for that book out of her own collection. We found pictures from all over. We, we had Faulkner scholars bringing us pictures. There was a young man who showed up at Roanoke in the 1940s who was a student in, in Iowa, a college student, And he took, his name was Dan Brennan, and he took some wonderful pictures of Faulkner that were candid photos of him with his family. So we were able to put all this together and make a a narrative of Faulkner's life, a photographic narrative. We backed into publishing with that book.
3: What year did you start the press?
2: We bought it in 1979.
3: There have been some pretty notable writers in the Oxford area in the years after who I don't know would have stepped into William Faulkner's shoes, but certainly were notable.
2: Oxford began to evolve from under Faulkner's shadow as a one-writer town in 1980 when Willie Morris came to teach at Ole Miss, and Dean and I helped him get established. We led a fundraising drive that raised the money for his salary, actually. And Barry Hanna followed soon after. I introduced Willie and Barry. They'd never met before. Oh Miss hired Barry, even though they were dubious of him as a real character. He was very eccentric. For example, Barry said he wanted to meet the um, English department, and we said, we will give a dinner party, a buffet dinner, and, and bring them and their wives or husbands. So we're giving a dinner party for about 30 people, and Barry doesn't show up. I knew he was he was at the Hall of the Hand, so I called <laughs> the bartender. Clyde Goolsby was the, the great, venerable bartender, uh, we all love Clyde. And I called, and Clyde answered, and I said, is there a guy there in a leather jacket who was telling stories about being a Phantom fighter pilot in Vietnam? And he said, yeah, would you come get him? <laughs> and Barry Hanna <laughs> was lying about having served in Vietnam. I got Barry and brought him to the party. And by that time, it was 9 or 9.30, and just about everybody had left. But thank goodness the chairman... And the search committee had stayed about four or five teachers, so they they liked Barry and they wanted they wanted to hire him. but he, remember he had not done well at the University of Alabama, he had to leave because of a incident that involved a pistol in his classroom. So uh, Evans Harrington, the chair of the English department, called me and said, "Do you think we can take a chance on Barry?" And I said, "Are you kidding?" you'd have the Willie and Barry show. No other school in the South could match it. So they hired Barry and were happily leading the South, really, in terms of literary acclaim there for a while.
3: Larry Wells is the author of In Faulkner's Shadow, A Memoir. Larry, thank you so much for being with us. Okay, thank you, Karen. I appreciate it. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.